This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. Thanks so much for joining this conversation today. We're we're digging into a mini-series for late summer that we are calling Getting By. And each episode, we're inviting a guest who has something specific to share about how we can get by in life, considering all the things happening in the world today. Now, Hannah, I have been thinking about our kickoff conversation in the previous episode and how we are discussing this this idea of getting by. And one thing that has struck me in the past few days is how much casual conversations have changed because of how the world is right now. And As I've been out, like grabbing some groceries or something, you know, we have on masks. So that is different with conversation. But even the content of the conversation has changed because of what's going on in the world. And it's a little weird. Have you noticed that? It is. I I found this to be true when I started signing off emails this way. May God keep you in his mercy. (laughs) As if I were... Because I may never see you again. (laughs) Yes, keeping a diary in the midst of the Civil War or the plague. But I did. Even like my most basic correspondence suddenly had this heightened level of, I may not talk to you ever again. (laughs) (laughs) So I must give you all the well wishes. Well, I've noticed that, let's say in the past, the, the casual conversation would be something so benign, like the weather, or are you busy? And now it really just goes in deep to, are you making it? How are you getting food? I mean, it's like all these very serious things. And then even things like dealing with the stress and the concern and the news, so many articles. And the conversations have had, uh, I guess, more urgency or seriousness, more weight. And it just feels heavier to me than how it would have been, let's say, before all of this kicked in. Absolutely. And I've noticed it, too, in media. Um, Mm. Now, obviously, media is always going to have an emotional element to it because that's how it sells. But my kids and I, we were sitting down the other night to watch a special about coronavirus and schools and all that. And my middle son, he's 14, he's just like, oh, I just can't take it anymore. (laughs) It's too stressful. Like he just even watching the program, 
And I said, what? Are you worried you're going to catch it? He said, no, it's just like everybody's, you're going to die. You're going to die. Yes. I mean, it's the topic of every conversation. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I mean, and as it should. I mean, this is serious. But even the conversations like, well, how are you or... How's it going? I I don't know how to answer that. I feel a little stuck because I'm like, do you really want to know? Do you want me to crack open what's going on inside my heart and soul? Because there's a whole lot happening in there. And I even had a conversation where someone who I have just texted with over the past few months, and I happened to see her in person. It was so exciting. Um, And she said, oh, so what's new? And I'm thinking, really? Like, how how am I supposed to answer that? I mean, I haven't seen you in months. Everything's new and everything's terrible in the world. And I I just thought it was interesting how our conversations now are different. Even the casual catch-up conversations, they, they don't have the lightness that they used to. And I think so many of us are weighed down and struggling with the state of things because it's scary and it's hard and we don't know how to deal with all the swirl that's going on inside. On the upside, on the upside of this though. Yes, help Hannah. I I will say (laughs) I've noticed that the weight of everything has made the things I was already struggling with feel less. So before all of this happened, you know, life is still hard. It's still difficult. And we have our own individual struggles. And, you know, whether it's uncertainty about the future, a hard time with your health, a hard time with your work, whatever. And so I was experiencing a sort of um, a distinct set of suffering prior to this that was private and weighty and it felt all consuming. And I didn't even know what the word all consuming meant, quite frankly. So one of the weirdest experiences in all of this has been how those things seem almost lighter now that everything else has kind of been absorbed in this larger um, shared suffering. And I th- I think if if I've learned anything in the last few months, it's that I really didn't have a good grasp on how to suffer well um, or how to understand the weight of things or even a paradigm for saying, what is it like to exist in a moment of heaviness and, and to survive it and come out the other side in a way that can be not necessarily productive, but like it doesn't consume you and swallow you whole to the degree that it becomes the only thing, the only thing about your existence. Well, I mean, that's something I think all of us are struggling with and wanting to understand and to learn. I, this idea of the weight of your own life, then compounded by the weight of the way the things are in the world, there's a lot there to learn how to bear up under. And and that's why for this first conversation in our Getting By series where we have a guest, we have someone special for our conversation today. We have Wendy Alsup. Wendy has been with us on Persuasion before. She's a dear friend, deep thinker. She's a community college math teacher, editor at Theology for Women, and author of several books. Wendy, we are so glad you're back with us on Persuasion. Thanks for being here. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited. 
Now, Wendy, we wanted to have you on specifically because of um, your latest book, which is actually about the topic of suffering, which I have to say was fairly prescient of you. Very good job of getting ahead of the curve there. But your book has been released with IVP. It's called Companions in Suffering. Um, Tell us, though, before we get too far into discussing the book and how we should frame our thinking about even the concept of suffering, how are you getting by right now? What is bringing you comfort and clarity? How are you surviving? Yeah, I... I like this question I, because it made me reflect. I am surviving and, and sometimes you don't um, really think through and acknowledge what why it is. And, I'm, and so I've got two things. One, in fact, I'm going to do it today. I have um, several ladies from my church, which we have a little cross-cultural church plant, but um, our relationships are deep and real and they're safe in terms of... Um, we all have a similar um, ethic about how to quarantine during coronavirus. So we have this little outdoor restaurant um, in um, my hometown. And we every now and then someone will just send out a text. Guys, I just, I need, I need y'all. Can we meet this week? And um, they have been so helpful for emotional and mental relief. And just, you know, some physical presence and with people you feel reasonably safe with. But then the other thing, I'm, I'm a news addict, which is n- n- not the healthiest thing in this season. But I live on a farm. <clears throat> and so I could turn the news off and go on my screen porch. And um, Hannah's been out here. <clears throat> it's beautiful. <laughs> and you know, there's a pecan grove, and that's a pecan, I should say pecan for all of you other folks from not from South Carolina. There's a pecan grove, <laughs> a cornfield. And um, I feel like every day, I'll, I'm going to cry as I, every day as I go sit on the porch, God reminds me of Eden, and He reminds me that for all of the curse, there is a nugget of creative glory that still exists that he's calling us back toward. And that juxtaposition between all that's wrong in the world on the news versus the remnants of what's right with the world um, that I get to see, which is always my encouragement to folks is, you know, if you're in an apartment, find a park, find some, you know, go for a drive out to the mountains, but figure out a way to get outside so that you can have some contrasting vision. That perspective is so needed because that feeling of being outside and surrounded by things that are doing what they're meant to do, the growing, like you, you mentioned the trees and the crops and I, it's like you've painted such a great picture, but the, the surrounded picture of nature, it it sort of helps you to know that the world is still turning, even though things feel so disruptive. It's like there are still things good in the world. And man, we need that. I I really appreciate that picture, Wendy. Yeah. And you know, um, in creation, God is very specific. He doesn't just make plants. He makes seed bearing plants. And I found something just really um, 
has been a healthy or, or detoxing maybe is the word to watch seeds grow in the ground, go in the ground. And then these plants shoot up. I've even gardened more this year than I, I ever have because I had yes. the time that I never <laughs> I've seen so much and, of that. And I think that's what's getting a lot of people by, a lot of gardening right. and baking and just seeing things develop and grow. Yeah. Right. And it's so interesting that it's kind of going back to things that have existed really through every pandemic, whether it was in the Middle Ages or the Spanish flu, we, you know, it's almost going back to the things that have sustained every generation Mm -hmm. since creation. And those things still work. That's a good word. Well, Wendy, Hannah had mentioned your book. Um, Again, the title there is Companions in Suffering, Comfort for Times of Loss and Loneliness. And we obviously from the title, that's such a beautiful thing, this comfort in times of loss and loneliness, such a good fit for the time that we are in. And I would love for you to share a bit about your book and uh, what inspired you to write it. Could you just tell us a bit about it and and how it came to be? So in 2012, um, my family life went in um, a direction um, as uh, you, uh, it involves my ex-husband and I, so I, I try to be circumspect in the details I share. I want to share my story, but ne- not necessarily expose him so much publicly. But um, we just went up down a path in our marriage and with his mental health that um, was pretty disturbing and ended up in a divorce that I did not want. And so then I moved back to South Carolina and the safety net of my family moved back to our our old family farm, which has blessed me greatly to be here. It's very healing type of retreat. And then I was diagnosed with um, breast cancer. And at that point, you know, I'm a single mom, only, you know, income depended on me. Single mom uh, with kind of a disturbing family history trying to make by and help my elderly parents. My mom and dad have are in their eighties and, So anyway, all that to say, it was um, a very disturbing diagnosis, and I strongly wrestled with God and um, had, I guess, six surgeries over a two-year, two-and-a-half-year period, Um, and it was very alienating. It was mostly alienating in my head. It was alienating physically, but looking back, the alienation was really in my head because, um, especially in the South, where... You try to be, um, people don't bear their souls. Um, and, you know, you, you try to, I don't know, it's a little different than it was in Seattle. And so I felt so different in my head and did not know how to engage again with the people that I had normally engaged with. I couldn't superficially for sure, because I had no superficial left in me. Um, And so I just, I felt very alienated. Um, And my church on both, both coasts really spoke into my life, walked with me well. And so that's why I I do like to distinguish. I don't want to reflect poorly on anybody who was walking with me during that time, but I had to find my way back out of my head 
Um, and, and I found it a lot through um, solidarity with um, the, the scriptures and the stories of scripture. And so that's what I kind of want to bring to um, sufferers where in scripture that, you know, the Bible says, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. So when he returned, he did not leave us by ourselves to navigate these kind of terribly hard situations on our own. And so I try to spend time in the book really helping folks find solidarity, find in scripture, in um, the people of the faith that have gone on before us, and even in our own churches. I have a real good, solid group of folks who have suffered, who support me. Um, So that's kind of the message of the book. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Wendy, I think it's so fascinating how you talk about suffering being, um, having a feature within your own mind and within your own head, because I think we often look at the external, um, presentation of suffering. Like I had a cancer diagnosis. I had a marriage that, you know, ended in divorce, right? Was in the midst of a global pandemic. And we, we often think that the weight is the thing that's outside coming on us. The thing out there is causing the, Uh, confusion, the pain. And if we could just remove that, then we wouldn't be suffering anymore. And I think maybe that's part of, I have found in my own life that I just want solutions to this present moment. I, I want answers and I want things to be managed well. But if we can just stop the problem, then the suffering won't continue. But as I read your book, so much of it was about what's going on in your own head and how the, the, The challenge of suffering is how self-isolating it can become, but also it challenges some of our assumptions about the life we expected to lead. And I found one of the most significant parts of this book was basically the normalization of suffering. To say that suffering is part of the human experience and that often our theology doesn't adequately account for it because it's actually giving us a different message about how we would lead life on this broken earth. Could you talk a little bit more about what you talk about in the book about the idea of kind of a prosperity gospel or the ways that our thinking isn't even ready 
to deal with suffering when it comes. And therefore we're caught in this whirlwind, this chaos mentally. Um, like you said, you're in your own head. Yeah. Um, I do think we have what I call the prosperity gospel of conservative evangelicals. You know, like we, we recognize the prosperity gospel of someone say like Joel Osteen and we put it away, but I know in youth group, I was taught that if I made the obedient, wise choices in my college years, you know, if I avoided sexual immorality, you know, didn't sleep around, dated guys who were Christians and waited until I got married to have married to have sex and got counseling before, you know, this list of things um, that I would be set up for the good life or a peaceful life, a godly life. And, um, you know, so it was pretty disturbing to me when things started to fall apart and I couldn't figure out, well, where had I jumped off the bandwagon? Where had I started being disobedient? Where was I unwise? And it was very vexing mentally to kind of wake up and realize, well, you know, actually there, the, the, the predominant story in scripture is of suffering and God being faithful through suffering. And it's not just like Joseph and Job's life, but you have it in David's life. You have it in Moses's life. Moses was separated from his mother. Moses's mother did not get to long-term raise her son. Um, And so you have suffering that at every generation is actually the norm of their story. Um, Jeremiah's life, um, you know, the suffering is the norm, not the exception, even for those who make wise choices. And, um, I had to go through suffering before that theology was cleared up in my, my head. It doesn't mean that wise choices, there's no benefit to wise choices. I think there very much is benefit to obedience and wise choices, but that's not why we obey And that's not why we choose the wise way. Um, We obey because God is worthy and we obey with a long-term view of where he's taken us. But it is not if, you know, it's just a very transactional relationship. If you obey God or make these choices because you think he's going to bless you really materially. In the end, we do attach some idea of material blessing. And so if we lose the job, if our car wrecks, you know, if our kids um, make poor choices, we have really attached a transactional um, thing with our our obedience to God. And we're disappointed in him because he didn't do his end of the bargain. And for me, that had to be exposed through suffering. And as hard as it was, it was good for me to have that exposed. I see so much of the connection being almost like there's the cause and the effect. And every time something goes wrong, it's sort of like, well, there's a reason why it went wrong. So let's figure it out. And most likely it's because you failed to do something. And so then it becomes the sense of like, well, if I keep my list the way that I should do all the right things, then life should turn out the way that I want it to turn out. And if it doesn't, then that's when either you have somehow hidden sin that you didn't know that you had, or like you've caused the suffering because of something that you missed. And almost as if you could live the perfect life if you 
did it just right. Like if you did everything just right, then you will have the life that you want. That's that's hard to grapple with because none of us have that perfect life. And yet these thoughts are still so pervasive. Like what is it about our thinking that it's like we see what you're saying in scripture and we all agree with that. And yet we still want to be able to check all the boxes and and get the life that we want. Like it's still there. I think it's two things. One is that we don't really well discipline uh, or distinguish between um, discipline and punishment. So God, you know, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right. So punishment is put away. God is not going to, I'm not under an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, God will discipline me, which is discipling, right? There's a reason that those two words in English are closely related. He will teach me and train me in righteousness. Now, when it comes to, um, you know, a problem in my life, which I, I was very vexed trying to figure out, like you said, I'm, to- I'm, I'm an earnest Christian woman, self-examining, what did I do wrong? Where did I drop the ball? How did I get myself in this situation? And a wise friend told me, um, it was a really good piece of advice. She said she felt like the Holy Spirit is like um, a referee in a football game, where if he throws the flag, he is going to tell you what it is for. Like, there's no, the Holy, there's no value to the Holy Spirit of convicting me, but he never lets me know what he's convicting me of. And so I've, it's not like I've never sinned in my suffering. But the feeling that I've done something wrong, but I don't know what it is, that is not of God. The Holy Spirit is going to convict me of sin, he's, but he's not going to leave me. You know, he doesn't leave us as an orphan to figure it out on our own. And that was a really helpful distinguishing thing for me. I sin. I sin against my kids in particular, and the Holy Spirit convicts me of that sin. But when I feel that, well, what did I do? I'm, you know, and that I'm caught in some kind of self-deprecating, self-examining. Well, maybe, maybe you know, I need to add this to my list of think of righteous behavior. Well, I don't think that's of God. I don't. That's not consistent with the Holy Spirit. And you say that in such a uh, weight-removing way, like it is a freedom to hear that that, that God is not going to treat you that way as if he's just waiting for you to figure it out and your suffering will alleviate once you figure it out. Like that's not the character of God. But one thing I've also been struck by even in the last few months about this question of why am I suffering? Um, What can I do to stop my suffering? Is that those kinds of questions also center us, right? So they're very... Um, natural and normal questions for people who are hyper-concerned about their personal experience, their personal faith, their personal encounter with this. And I think one of the most freeing things that we can do in suffering is just create a category that says, this may have nothing to do with me. Now, I can live faithfully in it. I can sin in response to it. Um, I can move toward greater virtue in response to it. But when you have something like, oh, I don't know, a global pandemic come upon you, it forces you to remember that this really 
isn't about you and you're not the center of why this is happening. I mean, I think sometimes in our individual suffering, when it's a a private personal suffering, we can get trapped in that kind of cycle of what did I do? How does this affect me? Me, 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 me. When we move into a space of collective suffering, where we're all suffering together, I've found that it kind of gives you enough margin to say, huh, maybe bad things just happen. Maybe this is just a broken world and there doesn't have to be a direct line between two points about why I'm experiencing the weight of the brokenness. Like I experience it not because I did something, but because I exist in a broken context. Right. I remember waking, um, you know, as the first days I was home after my mastectomy and they had found cancer in my lymph node, but the um, cancer doctor was never at the hospital and it was going to be like a month before I saw them. So nobody could tell me what it meant for me. But I knew that cancer in my lymph node changed how we were going to treat it going forward. So I was, you know, in a great deal of pain at home and mentally struggling. And um, it was, I turned on the news one morning, I always watch the Today Show, and it was the Las Vegas shooting. And, um, oh, it was so painful to watch. And yet... There was something about the fact that we were all, that my body wasn't the only broken thing in the world, you know, and I wept with them. I wept for them, but I more just wept with them. And like, it gave me permission just to weep for myself, weep for them, weep for all that was wrong in the world, weep for broken bodies, my broken body, their broken bodies. And, um, you know, there was no joy in their pain, but there was solidarity that I found really, really helpful in those first days of coming to terms with my own diagnosis. That's so important, Wendy, what you're saying about being able to sit and and just feel the sadness and the sorrow that things are broken and we are all in it, all of us. I I appreciate that perspective of solidarity. Like so often there's more of a sense of like, ooh, I don't want to get too close to the suffering. You have yours and I'm going to hold you at arm's length because I don't want it. I don't want to catch it almost like I don't want any part of that. And this idea that we would enter into suffering and um, and acknowledge that we're all under it, your experience is giving me a really good model for how we would do such a thing in terms of what's going on in the world with the pandemic and in the United States in terms of the racial reckoning that's going on. And this this model of it's good for us to sit and weep and to process and to feel that connectedness in terms of we are all in need and we're all hurting, we're all broken. Um, 
I've had that experience um, in watching the news or reading an article. I, I feel like that is um, such a holy moment where you you feel that connectedness, and I do think it is God awakening the heart to to help you to understand the weight of grief that He has when He observes all of us like sheep without a shepherd and and the suffering that we're going through. So that's really profound and helpful. Yeah. And you know, another thing, and I really try to explore this in the book is what you're saying is Jesus. I mean, it's really profound that Jesus wept, that Jesus was a man of sorrows. Um, And, you know, Paul calls us to enter his suffering. And, um, it's part of union with Christ. We think of union with Christ, or for those who, you know, ponder it. I've, for, I've long thought of union with Christ as how he empowers me. But it was really powerful for me to get how he suffered and how he understands my suffering, that we can sit in this tent together and he nourishes me, and I understand him. We hold hands across the table. We cry together. But um, I, I think it's so profound that he knew he was going to heal Lazarus, but he saw all the pain of the world. You know, they were upset. They were There was mourning. And even though he knew he was about to make it all right, he wept at their suffering. And it's really empowering. And, you know, it just really reminds us he hasn't left us as an orphan. He knows these this pain and he doesn't condemn us for it. You know, like I really hate the idea. I hear it sometimes of, quote unquote, suffering well, um, which I feel like is code for don't really lament. Don't lament too long. You know, get up, stop lamenting. You know, take off your sack clothes, you know, put on new clothes. But I think Jesus gives us permission to lament long and hard. And I think we should theologically, you know, death is the fall. It's not, COVID is not God's created order. COVID is effects of the fall. So I'm no, I'm not making my peace with death. I'm not making my peace with COVID. It's going to make me sad. You know, when we get a vaccine, I will rejoice. But when any, I'm not going to look away when I see ICU people dying, grasping for breath, and a nurse who's not a family member having to be the last person with folks dying. Um, you know, mourn that because that's that's not what we're supposed to be at peace with, and it's okay that we're not at peace with it. Wendy, you used that phrase, suffering well, and that was actually on my list of things to talk about because I I do think that we've painted a picture of um, almost like conquering suffering, like doing it with dignity or or it's like got a really zipped up proper way of, of looking at suffering and pain. And I like that you've kind of torn that down a little bit. And I, I'm wondering in this conversation if you have maybe a 
a better way of thinking of suffering, like instead of suffering well, like what is it? Like it's not ignoring it. It's not grinning and bearing it. So then what is it? Like what are proper ways to suffer? Like what does it mean to suffer? Because I feel like we're so bad at it. Like it's so foreign. We don't even know what is it that we do that will walk us through the suffering? Like what are the practices or what are the motions? What what is it that we do in our suffering so that it feels more normalized? You mentioned weeping. Um, are there other things that you would recommend or um, or call out and point to and say, hey, these are normal modes of suffering and moving through suffering? Well, the primary thing that helped me, and it's the primary thing that, that God gives us in the book of Job, um, and it's that the book of Job, and by the way, it's, they think it's like the oldest book. The first book that was written is the story of suffering. And it's a model for what's going on behind the scene. It's a roadmap for what's going behind the scenes in, in suffering. And God bookends both ends of Job with that Job was a righteous man. And here's what Job did. So you got maybe two, three chapters at the beginning. You got three chapters at the end or so. And then you got this bulk, like 30 chapters in the middle of Job wrestling, wrestling, but he's wrestling with God. And that is healthy Christian suffering. It's it's not not wrestling That is not the model in scripture. That's not the model of the Psalms. That's not the model of the book of Lamentations. It's not the model shown us in Job. We wrestle, but we stay engaged with God. And so we in the evangelical church, I think we've done a terrible job of teaching people to go to God with their questions. You know, they're supposed to go to God once they've decided they got it all settled kind of outside of God, and now they're ready to approach God, which is (laughs) anti-gospel. You know, you're supposed to approach the throne room for grace and mercy in your time of need. And we keep kind of telling people, how about get it together a little bit, you know, get it together so you can enter the throne room of God. And there's so little gospel in that, no gospel. But Job stayed engaged with God. And for me, it was very helpful in the weeks leading up to my um, first surgery. And then again, the weeks leading up to my second one after they found another tumor. Um, I walked the loop of around my farmhouse, a little dirt road, listening to Job, to his wrestling. And now I I would skip over the friends because they get on my nerves. But um, I would listen to Job's wrestling and I would just I would echo the words, you know, why? He asked some really raw questions of God. Why? Why are you allowing this? And he even has this moment where he tells he's like, God, leave me alone. And maybe I can carve out a few happy days. Maybe I'll smile once or twice again before I die. And I'm and when he said that, I'm like, honestly, God, that's kind of how I feel, because right now I feel like you're allowing things in my life. And if, you know, being, if I can go over here and be out of your will and not have these things allowed in my life, I'm kind of interested in that actually, God. And, but Job saying those things and me echoing the scripture that was preserved in eternity, inspired by God, 
I think to equip me for this, God, that's how, that's how I finally got through it. That was my path um, to come out on the other end like Job did. I know my Redeemer lives and um, God is God and I am not. But in order to get to that finale, I had to go through the 30 chapters of wrestling. And I think a lot of times we try to just teach the finale. We teach the front end and the back end, but we don't allow people the, the time that Job took through the 30 middle chapters. That is such a good word. We need this teaching, Wendy. So I'm so glad you are here with us today. As I listen to you, Wendy, I think how, again, what an invitation this is to bring our suffering to God, to have the freedom to wrestle with him. But I also think it's something of a mandate or, or um, I don't know, it, it's really the only way forward, both to alleviate the suffering we have, but also to ensure that we don't contribute more suffering because we're suffering. I mean, that seems to be what happens when people have pain or suffering and they are struggling and they're isolated and they're on their own. It's that phrase, what um, hurt people hurt people. So the way humanly that we reach a limit of what we can handle, we reach a limit and then our natural human response is to take our suffering and spread it to other people because it feels like a way to alleviate it. So I was talking with my sister, and I know I shared this with you, Wendy, um, but I was talking with my sister a couple weeks ago, and she mentioned how suffering well, part of that is not sinning in your suffering, not adding to the suffering of the world. And humanly, we're not capable of that. Like if we just try to handle our suffering, just to deal with it, just to hold it all within ourselves. It is inevitable that it will harm us, but we will end up harming other people. And so that call to take it to God, to wrestle with him is more than just, this is the way you'll feel better. It is the way you won't hurt other people. Um, it is the way that you will both um, be relieved of the weight but also that God in himself can absorb the suffering of the world. And he is the only one ultimately that is um, large enough and powerful enough to do that. Yeah, he, he is the only one with the shoulders broad enough to bear the weight. And um, if we don't have, if we don't place it on him, we are going to, it's going to come out somehow. I mean, I was a pressure pot. I was a pressure pot of emotion. Sometimes I say, you know, even still today, there's a manhole cover on my emotions sometimes, but I can smell them coming out and you dare not lift it up, but you have to lift it up at times. As the pressure pot builds, you have to deal with these emotions. And I have had many times where I aim them at my children when what I really had to do was to go out and aim them at God. And it almost sounds blasphemous to think of aiming them at God. And yet that's what he asks us, you know, you know, um, bring your prayers and supplications to God and the peace of God 
that um, passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And, you know, I memorized it in, in childhood. But if you really think about it, he's like these supplications, these crying out agony cries. And we think supplications. Oh, Lord, would you please help me with this person or this illness? But that's not how Job's doing it. That's not how David's doing it. You know, how long, oh, Lord? You know, why are you doing this, Lord? And we we might read them in um, kind of monotone voices. But in reality, if you read them and and attribute to it any emotion that the words are indicating, they are crying out to God. They are wrestling with God, wrestling with God. And that's because the emotions require This is the fall of man we're talking about. These are the the outworkings of all that is wrong with the world. My kids can't handle that. My kids cannot handle my emotions about that. My ex-husband can't handle my emotions about that. My parents, my sister, they can't handle my emotions about the fall of the world and how it's playing out in my life. God can and God invites us to. God recorded in scripture, in his eternal word, the invitation to wrestle with him and the model to wrestle with him and bring these things to him. And that's what suffering well is. Wendy, I so appreciate your word here and um, the work that you've done with your book and pulling these things together for us. I know our listeners are really going to appreciate all that you've shared. And I really um, want to thank you for joining us on Persuasion to kick off this series. Thank you so much for sharing. I I will make sure that we get all the links in our show notes for, um, for you, Wendy, so that people can find you and follow you and they can grab a copy of your book. um, And all of you out there, thanks so much um, for listening to this first conversation. But we have more conversations lined up for the series. So um, we want you to stay with us for all of these um, conversations in the Getting By series. And as Wendy has reminded us, one of the fallouts of suffering is that it isolates us from each other and that we can get within our own headspace. And so to combat that in this moment, we just want to invite you as we always do to keep in conversation, keep in conversation with each other. You can come and keep in conversation with us. You can find us at Persuasion CAPC at Twitter. Um, If you're a member of the Christ and Pop Culture members group, you can um, come there and Over the years, I just want to testify how I have seen that group be a place that bears each other's sufferings well. Um, And it's a great place to to kind of break that isolation. Um, If you're not a member, you can become a member by supporting this program, um, by supporting all the good work through Christ and Pop Culture for just $5 a month. Um, And 
As always, we just want to invite you to stay in conversation with us. Uh, Find us at our website, persuasionpodcast.buzz, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all of these different spaces, and um, keep the conversation going. We want to give a shout out to Jonathan Clausen. He produces Persuasion and all the other podcasts in the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You can listen to all those shows at christandpopculture.com or head over to iTunes and search for them there. We are so grateful that you would join us for Persuasion today, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.